I'm uh, very glad to be able to once again be with you in this uh, Israel Convention. I think Ken really wondered whether I would uh, finally turn up. <laughs> but I have, by the grace of God. Now, I'd like to read um, in the Old Testament... I would like to read the 83rd Psalm I'm going to read it in the Living Bible version the 83rd Psalm O oh God don't sit idly by, silent and inactive when we pray. Answer us. Deliver us. Don't you hear the tumult and commotion of your enemies? Don't you see what they are doing, these proud men who hate the Lord? They are full of craftiness and plot against your people, laying plans to slay your precious ones. Come, they say, and let us wipe out Israel as a nation. We will destroy the very memory of her existence. This was their unanimous decision at their summit conferences. They signed a treaty to ally themselves against Almighty God. These Ishmaelites and Edomites and Moabites and Hagrites, people from the lands of Geval, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, and Tyre. Assyria has joined them too and is allied with the descendants of Lot. Do to them as once you did to Midian or as you did to Sisera and Yavin at the river Kishon and as you did to your enemies at Endor whose decaying corpses fertilized the soil. Make their mighty nobles die as Orev did, and Ze'ev. Let all their princes die like Zeva and Salmuna, who said, Let us seize for our own use these pasture lands of God. O oh my God, blow them away like dust, like chaff before the wind, as a forest fire that roars across a mountain. Chase them with your fiery storms, tempests, and tornadoes, utterly disgrace them until they recognize your power and name, O Lord. Make them failures in everything they do. Let them be ashamed and terrified until they learn that you alone, Jehovah, are the God above all gods in supreme charge of all the earth. Now, that has a quite contemporary ring about it, even in the authorised version. Um, but I thought it would be good to read it in the Living Bible. It might just bring it home to you even more. I was asked if I would uh, give you an up-to-date report and to entitle it A Threefold Look at Israel Today. And I um, am very glad to be able to be here and to be able to give you um, in person a report of our 
present situation um, in the Middle East. I'm going to divide it into three, the military situation, the political situation, and the spiritual situation. First of all, the military situation. The overall picture at present in the Middle East, humanly speaking, is very grim indeed. Uh, from the uh, world's point of view, from the standpoint of uh, man, without God, the future in the Middle East can only be one of much greater war and strife. Just destruction. There are weapons being poured into the Middle East now which have a terrible, almost a catastrophic potential. The uh, Iraqis, if it was not that they were spending their time fighting Iran, would have uh, reactivated their nuclear program. The Soviet Union has already offered to provide them with all the technology and know-how to reactivate their nuclear program. And there is absolutely no doubt at all that the aim is not nuclear energy, as the West would like to believe. It is, the objective is to obtain a nuclear device as quickly as possible as a means of blackmail in the Middle East, as far as other Muslim nations go, and, of course, supremely as a means of a final solution to the Jewish problem. It is also very interesting that Iran has reactivated her nuclear program. Khomeini had uh, shelved it some years ago, but recently he has reactivated that program. But even altogether apart from nuclear devices, our situation in the Middle East from the military point of view is a very dark one and a very grim one indeed. The new kind of missiles that the Soviet Union has been supplying her allies have terrible capabilities. And some of these weapons have not as yet ever been before um, Law, uh, uh, put into position outside of the boundaries of the Soviet Union. I said that the outlook is grim uh, from the point of view of man without God. But with God, the outlook is glorious. God himself has said for our encouragement and for our uh, um, strength, and that we might trust in days which might appear to be very dark, through the prophet Zechariah, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And again, 
For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. I find that very interesting. It is not Satan who is gathering the nations together uh, against Jerusalem for battle, but it is the Lord. So why should we be discouraged? Um, I know there are those believers who cannot swallow such a bitter pill. Uh, they would feel that the Lord can't have anything to do with gathering nations together against battle. But the prophet Zechariah, speaking by the Spirit of God, some 2,500 years ago, has already, for our comfort and encouragement and strengthening in these last days, given us this marvelous word. After all, 100 years ago, one would wonder what the nations would want to gather together against Jerusalem for. Jerusalem was a city with an antique past, half-ruined, flea-bitten, unhygienic and smelly. 100 years ago, it was the capital of nothing. It was a hill town, a town in the hill country of Judea, in the sleepy Syrian province of the Ottoman Empire. Who in the world could have imagined that all the nations of the world would be gathered together against Jerusalem 100 years ago? I mean, it would seem so ridiculous. What would they find in Jerusalem? What would they fight for Jerusalem? A couple of mosques and a few old churches and a few other sort of marble floors and um, cr crusader ruins and Byzantine mosaics? Is that what the nations of the world would fight against? A four? No, of course not. We know very well they wouldn't have bothered. If it had been a word about all the nations of the world be gathered together against London or against Paris or against Rome or against Washington or against Moscow or even Peking, I suppose most of us a hundred years ago could have imagined it. But to imagine that all the nations of the earth would be gathered together against Jerusalem 100 years ago, I want to say it makes nonsense of God's word. Nor have I heard anyone spiritualizing this word of Zechariah. These dear friends of ours who tell us that we're all up the garden path and leading everybody else up the garden path on the matter of the Word of God and its interpretation, I have never heard them satisfactorily spiritualize this word. I will gather together all nations against Jerusalem. I will gather uh, uh, all nations uh, against Jerusalem for battle. It is perfectly clear that, does, that Zechariah meant exactly what he said. And that is that the nations of the earth would be gathered together actually against Jerusalem in the last days. Now, 40 years ago, we would have had also some problem in understanding this. And there are quite a few of you here uh, today who can remember 40 years ago. Uh, you would have had some problem 40 years ago imagining that all the nations of the world would be gathered together against Jerusalem in 1944. I mean, what would they be gathered together against Jerusalem for? 
against Moscow, possibly, concerning Berlin, possibly, uh, concerning Paris or London or, or Washington, it could be understood. But against Jerusalem 40 years ago, of course, Jerusalem wasn't as unhygienic or smelly or flea-bitten as it had been a hundred years ago. The British, under their mandated authority, had cleaned up Jerusalem considerably. But Jerusalem was still not the capital of anything. She was ruled from some colonial office here, not very far from this place, in Whitehall. Who could have ever imagined that all the nations of the earth would be gathered together against Jerusalem for battle? But I want to say that today we fully understand it. We are witnessing something before our very eyes, which is the fulfillment of the word of God. My dear brother Derek Prince pointed out just recently in Jerusalem in the prayer and Bible week that there is no such thing as a kind of um, literal and spiritual fulfillment of God's word. I mean, the word has spiritual content, but it is fulfilled precisely as it says. In other words, when it says of Jesus that they would cast lots on his vesture, and not tear it. It's exactly what happened when it was fulfilled in the new covenant. And when they said that they would pierce his side and pierce his hands and his feet, it is exactly what happened. Now, the spiritual meaning of the literal fulfillment is obvious to all of us. The piercing of his hands and his feet brought our salvation. There couldn't be nothing more spiritual, more eternal, more glorious than that. But the fulfillment of the word of prophecy was actual. And anyone who wants to tell me that our salvation is just simply something airy-fairy, I don't agree. My salvation isn't. My salvation is for spirit, soul, and body. It's, it, it is a complete and absolute salvation. It begins with my spirit and will end, thank God, with the redemption of my body. Can't wait for it myself. And I, I suspect you can't either. But coming back to this matter, you know, again, just to quote Derek, because it, I found it tremendous, just the thought of it. He, of course, has studied philosophy, and he said, you know, the opposite of, a literal, of something literal is something metaphorical, not something spiritualized. Now, do we believe in a coming again of the Lord Jesus that's metaphorical? A kingdom of God that's going to come which is metaphorical? The glory of God which is going to fill the whole earth metaphorically? No, my friends, we believe in an actual fulfillment. I don't want any metaphorical business at all. I want to be in the actual thing, don't you? I want to see a lion lie down with a lamb. It's going to be exciting. I want to see children playing with adders and vipers. <laughs> I, w I want to see the, the mount of the Lord filled with the glory of God, the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I want to actually see it. I want to, like Job, stand in this body of mine and see on this earth and see the Lord. Well, my dear friends, from the human point of view, the situation in the Middle East is indeed grim. One would say hopeless. 
But with God, that is not the case at all. If we view it from our position seated with the Lord Jesus in heavenly places, then the whole, the same scene is filled with promise and with hope and with glory. Because God is actually working out his purpose through the antagonism and venomous hatred of the nations. He is using them, finally, stage by stage, to fulfill his program and his word. Now, I say I want to say something about the military situation. I want you to bear that in mind. When the Lord Jesus said enumerated all those things that would happen at the end, earthquakes and famines and um, uh, wars and kingdom against kingdom and nation against nation and persecution and abomination of desolation where it is standing where it ought not to stand and all these things, he said, and when you see these things begin to come to pass, look down and be depressed. No, he said, <laughs> look up. Lift up your heads, your redemption draweth nigh. My dear friends, that requires spiritual sight. To see through all the events and see who is behind them. To see beyond all the flesh and blood uh, uh, involvement to the Most High who rules in the affairs of men. Thank God we have not a God who's only interested in a church that he wants to catch out of this whole thing and let it rot. He is, we have a God who has a vested interest in redeeming the actual heaven and earth. Has an interest in taking this old earth that he created in those days at the beginning and which he said was good. He's going to take it and he's going to redeem it completely and deliver it so that out of it there shall come a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness in the same way that he took you, a sinner, fallen, alienated from God, and he has brought a new creation out of you wherein dwells righteousness. Thank God for that. Well, now, the military situation. Bear all this in mind when we look at it. For those who have eyes to see, the Soviets and their allies are fulfilling a long-term program. And one of those long-term programs is to encircle Israel with states that are either Marxist or are allied to them in a way that they will join them in the event of any global conflict. This is the reason for Afghanistan. This is why the Horn of Africa is so important to them. This is why Ethiopia is so important to them. This is why, with the help of their ally, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, they have been seeking to take Chad and they are seeking to take Sudan. Now, if those of you have got any geographical idea at all, you look, you will see from Afghanistan to the, to the Yemen, from the Yemen to the Horn of Africa, to Ethiopia, Sudan, Chad, Libya, you have an encirclement. 
Now, this is the reason why they are hoping that Greece is going to go more and more and more into their camp. And they would then like to come down, either with Turkey or Greece, and, 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 and complete the circle. Syria, Turkey, across to Libya, Sudan, Chad, Ethiopia, Yemen, Afghanistan, right the way round. The idea is to cut off the oil supplies of the Western world, so vital to them and upon which they put so much, and also to neutralize and nullify the only army, air force and navy in the Middle East that really could possibly do something as far as the Soviet and their allies are concerned. Now, that is the overall picture. Then we have another element in this. By the way, they are at present succeeding. Their plan is going ahead stage by stage. The second element in the military situation is the Iran-Iraq war. We in Israel are undisguisedly thankful that these two frontline rejectionist states who hate Israel so bitterly and so fully have been engaged in a three and a half year long war with each other. It's interesting that the Western world apparently has taken very little note of this Iran-Iraq war. Uh, they were also caught on the Lebanon business. But in actual fact, the Iran-Iraq war has been far more savage the Iranians have lost over 250,000 men, many of them only 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old boys who have been given a silver amulet to wear and told that when they die in this holy war, this jihad, they will immediately enter into paradise. They've even used them to clear minefields. The real army of Iran has not as yet been flung into the battle. It's been kept in reserve. I I Iraq has lost something in the area of 80 to 100,000 men. Now, my dear friends, as far as Israel is concerned, whoever won this war, it would be a disaster for us. If Iraq beat Iran then we can be sure that within a couple of years, Iran is going to lead a crusade against Israel. And if Iran uh, wins this war, we are absolutely certain that within a couple of years, Iran is going to lead a crusade against Israel. Now, one thing about Khomeini we can say. People tend to think of Khomeini as a kind of... Uh, um, uh, emotional, empty-headed, uh, uh, religious leader, a leftover from the Dark Ages. But Khomeini is one of the most intelligent and shrewd and most politically aware m men in the world today, of this generation. What we have to recognize is that Khomeini, like Adolf Hitler, is demonized. And wherever this man comes, blood is going to flow. 
Because it is not just a human movement. It is a demonic movement. Now, Khomeini has been absolutely true for the last 50 years, long before he was exiled by the Shah's father to Iraq. He had already said that one day there would be a revolution and that Allah had destined the Shiite denomination of Islam. You know, Islam is divided into two major denominations and uh, the one is Shia and the other is Sunni. Now the Sunnis are all the North Africans, the Egyptians, the Saudi Arabians, the Jordanians, uh, and the Shiites are mostly Iran, a part of Afghanistan, there's a a large population of them in Iraq, about 60% of Iraqis are Shiites, whereas the ruling government clique is Sunni. And the Shiites have always been despised by the Sunnis, And Khomeini is a Shiite and he has said all along that Allah has destined the Shiites to finally come out on top in the last stage of Islamic conquest. Now as as far back as 50 years ago, Khomeini was warning everyone who would listen as a theologian that if a Jewish state came into being, it would be satanic. And it would be the last great attempt of Satan to frustrate Allah's plan for Islam to obtain the submission of the nations. When he was um, exiled to Iraq, um, he went on saying the exact same thing. And when this this present president of Iraq, Hussein, exiled Khomeini to Paris, Khomeini in Paris began to say the same thing. He said that every single Muslim had to be mobilized in a holy war against the Jewish state of Israel. It had to be liquidated and Jerusalem had to be liberated. Now when this Islamic revolution finally took place, On the very day that the Israeli embassy in Tehran became the PLO embassy in in Tehran, and in the mass rally that evening in which Khomeini spoke, he said, this is the first stage in the liquidation of Israel and the liberation of Jerusalem. When Iraq was as foolish, as to launch a war three and a half years ago against Iraq, against Iran, Khomeini responded by saying, we shall win if it takes years. And this will be the next stage in the liquidation of Israel and the liberation of Jerusalem. So the military outlook for us is is in one sense grim. At present these two have been locked in battle. They have exhausted each other. Iraq more than Iran. Iraq is using chemical weapons. She is using missiles because she's so desperate. Having begun the war, she can't now end it. And, and Khomeini is sitting quietly knowing very well that uh, the Iranian vulture is going to feed on the Iraqi corpse in the end.
It is only a question of time. All the Israeli analysts and experts on Iran and Iraq are unanimous in their verdict that uh, Iran is going to in the end win. They are only divided on one issue, when. A minority believe it will be in the next month. The majority believe it will be another year and a half to two years. But when that time comes, the whole face of the Middle East is going to undergo a sensational and dramatic change. Because if Iran wins, she will not occupy Iraq, but she will require an Islamic revolutionary government to be installed in place of the present one in Iraq. And the whole of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula will quiver. There is, there is not an oil sheikh, there is not a king in the whole Saudi Arabian Peninsula who will not shake in his galabia if once Khomeini has said again and again that he is going to have them, every one of them executed. And that is exactly the same for the Hashemite royal family of Jordan. They all know. Now, my dear friends, the interesting thing is we shall live to see it. They will then have to choose between either compromising with Khomeini which will be very difficult if he's still alive. He doesn't believe in compromise. But they will have to choose between compromising in a humiliating way with Khomeini or coming into some kind of security alliance with the hated Israel. Israel will be the only country in the Middle East that has an army, air force and navy that would be able to protect such an area of the world. Now I am not saying that this will happen, but what I'm saying is, is it not interesting that God is slowly pushing the enemies of Israel into a position where they have to rethink everything. It is interesting that just recently uh, Mr. Shamir, Yitzhak Shamir, the Prime Minister of Israel, offered Iraq publicly to build an oil pipeline across Israel's territory to one of our seaports so that Iraq could continue to export its oil, which it's been unable to do because Syria has cut the pipe. <laughs> Poor President Hussein of Iraq choked on his breakfast that morning. <laughs> it is interesting what he said. He said that Iraq is in a state of war with Israel. Iraq can have nothing to do with the illegitimacy of Israel. And that was the end of the matter. Isn't it interesting? Something like this, the way it's going to go ahead, none of us can fully predict. But, I have no doubt at all that um, um, Khomeini is going to have to face a choice in the next few years, and if not him, his successors, whom he has already named secretly, they're in a sealed uh, envelope, not the actual successors, but the names. Um, these, um, the, either Khomeini or these gentlemen, are going to have to uh, court the Kremlin. 
is the defined objective of the Islamic revolution to liquidate the state of Israel and liberate Jerusalem is to be, is to succeed. Khomeini has got to have the weapons and the armaments of the Soviet Union supplied to him. At present, Iran and the Kremlin are on very bad terms because Khomeini has executed all 60 leaders of the Tudeh Communist Party of Iran. And so they are in very bad terms with each other. But that doesn't matter. In these kind of things, you know, necessity makes strange bedfellows. And Khomeini is shrewd enough to know that he will never be able to fulfill his long-term objective of destroying Israel and liberating Jerusalem without the Kremlin's support and help. So I believe that Khomeini will seek unofficially to have some kind of alliance with them. And he believes that in the final analysis, the Islamic revolution will outwit Marxism and come out on top. And at the same time, I have to tell you that I believe the Kremlin will do precisely the same. The Kremlin knows very well that if its long-term policies for the whole of the oil area of the Middle East are to be fulfilled, and it is to get right down to the Indian Ocean and to the Red Sea in full, it needs the support and help of the Islamic Revolution. And I think the Kremlin will believe that that it can exploit and use, manipulate the Islamic Revolution and Khomeini, and in the last stage, outwit them. So you have Khomeini believing that he can use the Kremlin and outwit it in the last stage, and you have the Kremlin believing that it can use uh, Khomeini and outwit him in the last stage. And I tell you, God's going to outwit both of them. (laughs) But that's what they think they're going to do, in my estimation. If this is so, then I believe the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39 will indeed be upon us. Then we shall understand something tremendous, all this tremendous manpower. Why is the Soviet Union interested in, in um, uh, making some kind of alliance with the Islamic Revolution? Because the Soviet Union is sitting on a demographic time bomb within its own boundaries. It has 20 million Muslim citizens. And they are growing at the rate of 10,000 a month. And the Soviet Union, especially the Russians, have a pathological fear of the Asiatics. And they look upon all their Muslim citizens as Asiatics. So they will dearly like to turn the attention of this huge portion of their population away from internal problems in the Soviet Union and fix their loving eyes upon Jerusalem. Isn't it wonderful God's in charge of this whole business? Don't forget, dear friends, it's God who said, I will put a hook through their jaws. Now, when you put a hook through an animal's jaws, it means first it's not very willing... 
After all, if you want to get an ox or whatever else out of some one field into another, you can normally coax it or, or, or give it a whack in the right place. But, I mean, to put a hook through its jaw, a valuable creature's jaws, that means it's very unwilling. So don't think the Soviet Union is going to be that willing to get involved in this thing. Nor its allies. It looks to me as if God is behind this whole thing. I will gather together all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. It's the Lord. He's going to put a hook through their, their jaw and drag them down. Now when you put a hook to an animal's jaws, those of your farmers, you know as well as I do, that that means the animals for slaughter. You don't damage a valuable domestic animal unless it's for slaughter. So, my dear friends, it's exciting to know God's in charge of this whole thing. It's history repeating itself on a larger scale. It's um, Goliath and David all over again. Well, the Lord, as I say, has got marvellous purposes for all of this. So, the Iran-Iraq war is um, another uh, constituent of the military situation. And at present, they are locked in battle and may continue to be for the next couple of years, which gives us a breathing space. Thank God for that. But um, it, must in, it must come to a conclusion in the end. And when that happens, you can be sure that uh, some very dramatic developments are going to take place. Now, the other part, uh, uh, thing in the, uh, the other constituent in this uh, military situation is the Syrian um, involvement. Um, I have to tell you again that I believe that it can only be a matter of time unless a miracle happens, and God is in the business of miracles, but unless a miracle happens, a war with Syria um, is unavoidable. The way things are going at present, just li literally uh, before I came, there was a two to three hour tank battle between Syria and Israel in the Bekaar Valley, in which for the first time, as far as we know, the Syrians fired from within Syrian territory, as well as from Syrian-occupied Lebanese territory. Now, it will only require one of these incidents at some time to start, and the whole thing will go up. Syria is one vast arsenal. The Soviet Union, taking advantage of the American pressure on Israel uh, not to go forward with their plan to clear the PLO out of, out of uh, Lebanon altogether and to destroy the Syrian infrastructure um, in um, July of 1982, the... Uh, uh, Soviets have taken advantage of this American pressure on Israel and have now come back into the Syrian and uh, uh, Lebanese situation with force. They have trebled the military capacity of Syria. Far more terrible than that, they have now got within Syrian territory um, weapons, as I've already mentioned, that have never before been outside of the Soviet Union. They are able to neutralize the airspace of uh, uh, Iraq, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, up to the Cyprus coast. They have now a range in missiles that can take them as far as the nuclear plant 
in Demona, near Beersheba, in the south of Israel. So our situation again, as far as Syria is concerned, is, uh, humanly speaking, very grim indeed. There are people who seem to feel, uh, who I, I can't help suspect, want to believe that Syria really is doing all this in order to uh, bargain, to get a good bargaining position with Israel. Um, it's very hard for us to believe uh, that all, Syria is doing all of this in order to get a good bargaining position. She has never bargained with Israel at any single point. She has been implacable, one of our most implacable and cruelest uh, enemies. I don't know why, but uh, these things don't always get reported. I hope, I only can hope, that it's because the media were so disgusted and so revolted uh, that they didn't feel that they could put it on your television or upon American television. In fact, the incident I'm going to describe was put on television in the United States at 2 a.m. in the morning. Now, all the pictures of little children and all the rest of it that were injured and, and maimed in the Lebanese war, these were on, uh, on the television, at least in the United States and Canada, at prime viewing time every single day. Last October, last September, on the anniversary of the Yom Kippur War on the Day of Atonement, the Syrians staged a big official rally near Damascus in which tens of thousands of young people took part. The whole Syrian cabinet appeared at that celebration and were treated as a finale to girls dancing to Arabic music with live snakes and biting through them. And boys, young fellows in their early teens, stabbing to death young puppies, and at least one of them drinking the blood. This celebration of the Yom Kippur War and this particular incident sent the whole Syrian cabinet into a fervour. This is our neighbour. I believe that there must be good Syrians. But I do not believe the present government in Syria belongs to that category. We are therefore facing a very, very grim situation, militarily speaking. I believe that when Syria gets to the point where she feels that she will be able suddenly to launch an attack on Israel with a chance of really winning, she will do so. And it is an interesting fact that when information has reached us through channels that I am unable to disclose that uh, there was such an attack planned for the first day of Passover 
A number of us met for prayer, and whilst we prayed and besought the Lord that if it was not his will yet for this thing to happen, if it was premature, he would somehow or other avert it. An incredible tempest blew up, and it raged for 30 hours over the whole of our area with great rainstorms, most unusual in the middle of April. And um, this certainly put paid to any such military venture on the part. As you know, the Bible says there is a time that kings go out to war, and this is a time when the ground is dry and solid. <laughs> our, our sand may seem to you very firm, but when it gets wet, it's like clay, and it just collects like a snowball on everything. So there's no way you can do it. When we prayed again at the end of Passover, we didn't have quite such a dramatic tempest, but we had another one. And when two weeks later, we had another warning and we prayed, we had the most marvellous sandstorms. Um, and we, you couldn't even see the ships in the harbour at Ilat, where I was at the time. So it does look as if the Lord is just in answer to prayer, holding this whole thing back. But I believe there will come a time when it's right and the law will let it go forward. So, my dear friends, that's the military situation. Don't be afraid. Remember the, the title of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. That's a marvellous thing, isn't it? To know that he... Do you remember when the Syrians came and, uh, and poor old Elisha's servant got so terrified and rushed into Elisha and said, the whole place is surrounded by the Syrian army. And Elisha said, Oh, Lord, open his eyes. He's so panic-stricken. And the Lord touched the man's heart and his eyes were open and he saw the armies of the Lord encamped all round Elisha and on the hill. And he saw that there were more that were with them than with the, them. Yes, my dear friends, we have no need to fear on this thing. Now, what about the political situation? The political situation, I wish I could say, was... Um, more hopeful. But the political situation at present in Israel is also one of the... It's not as grim as the military, but it's certainly not a pretty picture at present. We have very much, as you've no doubt have heard through the media, quite a lot of division and faction, ranging from radical left to radical right. We had the Peace Now movement, a very small movement, but very volatile, that uh, is on the left. And then we have Terror Against Terror, uh, a Jewish underground that is planning all kinds, has done things and has planned all kinds of things against both Muslim and Christian Arab sites, as well as not even Christian Arab, but just Christian. Thank God the government has exposed and unmasked most of the terror against terror uh, network. And uh, the, the process of law is now uh, uh, going ahead on that. We have also a little group, an uh, even more dangerous group, called the Lifta group, which have all been apprehended. Just a small group in a village just outside of Jerusalem who plan to blow up the dome of the rock. Now, I know that that might find an echo in quite a few hearts. <laughs> but it is not the way to help the Lord. 
You see, so many Christians feel that when the Lord, it's rather like people who pray for something. You know, they, they see someone needs to be baptized or someone needs an experience of the Holy Spirit. So they say, we must pray. They pray for one day and nothing happens. They pray for one week and nothing happens. They pray for another week if they're spiritual and still nothing happens. And if they're very spiritual, they pray for a month. But when nothing happens, they feel now it's time to help the Lord. They will then buttonhole the person and give them a lecture on baptism or a lecture on an, a, a baptism of the Spirit or something or else. They feel the Lord has somehow or other gone to sleep and he needs us. Some years ago there was a youngster who was Pentecostal youngster. Uh, Israel, of course, decided he was deranged. Well... I have to say that I sometimes think some of my brothers and sisters are deranged, but still, um, the thing is, they thought he was deranged. He was the one who tried to burn down the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It was from Australia. He believed he'd got a word from the Lord that he should help to clear the temple site of all edifices so that the Jewish people could build again the temple. Now, the Lifter group is exactly the same. They believe that somehow or other we've got to clear the whole thing. And as you know, they plan to blow the whole thing up. Can you? And you know that they actually believe that by blowing up the mosques, the two mosques on the, on the Temple Mount, they would bring about an Armageddon war and hasten the coming of the Messiah. Now, that's the kind of danger we have. On the one side, the left wing, on the other side, the right wing, and then we've got people who have got theological uh, sort of bias or whatever. So, it is quite amazing. Uh, from all of this, we need help. The political um, situation is therefore very uh, difficult at present. As you know, we have an election coming up on the 23rd of July, and this election is, without any shadow of doubt, I think, going to be the most historic um, election that Israel has had. Because it's going to determine, for the next decade, I imagine, the course the country is going to take. And that the real issue is very much to do with Judea and Samaria. Should it be settled? Should it not be settled? And these are the heartlands of Israel. It is a very interesting thing when people say to me, but you know, I get to go wherever I go. Dear, well-meaning, somewhat sentimental Christians come up afterwards and say, in a kind of tentative and rather apologetic manner, Brother, yes, I say, um, Brother, I have supported Israel for years. Yes, oh, I'm very glad to hear that. Yes, yes, I pray for Israel. I've done this to Israel, I've given this to Israel, been right behind them. And I'm all with the way they've settled Galilee and those other places. But, I have to tell you, I'm, I just can't go along with this, all these settlements in, 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 in the West Bank. Now I find this very interesting because the Word of God doesn't say too much about Galilee being settled, nor about Philistia being settled, nor about the Sharon plain being settled. That's where all up to now the settlements have been. In the Philistine country, the low country, the Shephelah, Ashkelon, Ashtod, Gat, Ekron, that whole area, the Sharon area right round, Natanya and so on, Chadera and so on, that whole area, and, um, and the Galilee. But if you look at the promise of God about these people going back, it's about the cities of Judah. 
And it is about the, about the um, hills and mountains of Samaria being planted with vineyards and with orchards and with gardens and the people coming up to Jerusalem from, the, from Samaria and from Judea to rejoice before the Lord. So my dear friends, when it really comes to it, uh, there may be wrong ways of doing these things, but the fact remains that the heart of God's prophetic word concerning the resettling of Israel is to do with Samaria and Judea. And this is the whole problem that we face. Now, this, this election is going to determine things one way or another. One very interesting thing is, whichever political party comes in, they're not going to dismantle any settlements. Now, many people think that if the alignment comes in with Shimon Peres at its head, and uh, Yitzhak Rabin and uh, Yitzhak Navon, uh, that all the settlements are going to be dismantled. But they have already said that they will not dismantle one single settlement in Judea and Samaria. In other words, I, maybe this is rather unkind and I have to be very careful of betraying my political uh, sympathies, but um, I, I suspect that they are rather glad that someone else has done the job. And now uh, the work will can go on and they will not give it up and all the rest of it. Well, my dear friends, this election looks as if it's going to be a very hopefully contested one, um, uh, possibly a bitter one, and uh, I believe it needs very much prayer indeed. The historic significance of this uh, election will only be seen in the years to come. Now the spiritual situation, I have to say, that there is more spiritual awareness in Israel than for many, many years. There is not an awakening, but there are more who are discovering the Lord, and certainly many more returning to the heart and root and meaning of Judaism than ever before. Now, I've always believed that the veil on the Jewish heart will never be taken away until first the Jew discovers what Jewishness means. And so the, we see it everywhere. For instance, when I first used to go to Israel, if I saw a young man with a prayer hat on, a, a kippah on his head, I would turn around to look at him. Because it was so unusual. Quite unusual. You couldn't possibly turn around to look at all the young men with kippahs on their head today. I mean, you'd have a quick in the neck. I mean, uh, you'd be around the whole time. I mean, I mean at, least, like, at least 50% of the young fellows are wearing kippahs. What's happened? Well, some will say, well, it's merely nationalism. But even if it's only nationalism, something's happening. Wasn't there before. I noticed the most remarkable thing about Shabbat, the silence that comes over our whole area. Before, it never used to be like that. We used to hear the cars and everything and people doing things. I'm not saying everybody keeps it, but it's, it's noticeably, noticeably more quiet. And uh, this seems to me that there is a spiritual awareness that is, I am quite sure, the handiwork of God. I believe that the Lord is cornering Israel we are witnesses of a divine love story. We are watching the Lord in his jealous love 
cornering this people step by step and stage by stage. He is using military things. He's using economic things. He's using political things. I haven't said much about the economic side, but I should have just mentioned that the economic side of Israel is probably more dangerous and critical than any military or political situation. We are facing much unemployment. My uh, brother-in-law is the only one out of a whole course of 70 who got a job. And most of those are now returning to the countries they came from. The situation economically is disastrous. There's great talk just at present of a free trade area with America, with the United States. But the fact of the matter is that economically we are facing a bad situation. Now, God is using all these things to corner this people. The military situation. It was the Yom Kippur War that for the first time brought about a change uh, religiously in Israel. Uh, a marked change that has not stopped from that day onwards. And then we see this economic plight of Israel. And we see the political problems of Israel. Um, I believe God is doing this whole uh, uh, work. Something's on the move. I would just like to say something, since all of you know about it, about the harassment of, uh, of Christians and uh, Messianic uh, Jews. Israel's constitution gives absolute right of, of freedom of religion. And it, does, it, is, it is amazing to me that the old city of Jerusalem, there is total freedom in a way there was never freedom under Jordanian rule. I mean, Jews were not allowed even to go to the Western Wall for 19 years. But now when I left the city, all the lights were on for Ramadan. And uh, uh, the Muslim section of the population is encouraged and helped and supported by the municipality and particularly by the mayor. But there has been a whole number of incidents. As probably some of you know, believers were stoned in Tiberias. Um, there has been a press campaign against others. Uh, believers we know very well have uh, been accused of running brothels and uh, training prostitutes and uh, a thousand and one other things. Um, well, and when people always say to me, but these are the people you tell us we've got to support and be with, I always say, well, you know, the Bible says God blinded them. And in that sense, I think God has done a very good job. Um, I do not believe that this is a Jewish thing only. It is very interesting in the south of Lebanon, the prayer and Bible week in Jerusalem just recently, a doctor and his wife gave a report about the south of Lebanon and he had been stopped by Maronite soldiers and threatened with execution if he didn't get out of Lebanon. In other words, what we are witnessing is something from the powers of darkness. It doesn't matter whether it's Jewish or whether it's uh, so-called Christian. It is something that is, is, has got a, a hatred for uh, the real believer. And um, I, I can't help feeling that something's on the move. That God must be going to do something. And that the enemy has got wind of it and is up in arms 
to somehow or other stop anything uh, like that. My dear friends, I have no uh, worries about this kind of situation at all. If you ask me, um, uh, am I worried for Israel? I'm not the least bit worried for Israel. I'm more worried for other countries than for Israel. Israel will suffer, but Israel's going to come through. God has her hand, his hand upon her. Um, as it says in Psalm 46, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. Um, the fact of the matter is, we are uh, seeing the fulfillment of God's word. And really, ultimately, it is the redemption of Israel and the engrafting of Israel back into the divine tree that is the uh, ultimate uh, object of God. And all these other things are strands, if you like, in the operation. Um, there's no doubt in my estimation that a lot of Israelis are afraid, militarily speaking, for the first time. Uh, those who've never ever shown any kind of fear before concerning any of our previous wars in the last 36 years now speak in sort of uh, almost hushed terms about the next one. Because it is a kind of uh, inner feeling that the Soviets will somehow be involved. It was one thing to take on our neighbours. It's another thing to take on the Soviet Union. When just recently there was some incident, the Defence Minister of Syria threatened Israel by saying that an agreement had been signed with the Kremlin that in the event of war, they would fly in two divisions, that's 20,000 men, within eight hours of crack Soviet troops to Damascus and have them on the Golan within an hour or two. There's no doubt that that is the truth. So, for those of you who know your Bibles, you are actually beginning to see the shaping up of events. For that, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are seeing the stage cleared and the, the scenery put into, um, into place, it seems to me. And if that's the case, why should we fear? Now, I don't know whether you fear, and perhaps you feel that I'm the one that ought to fear. Um, living out there but why should we even if we're living there why should we really fear because in the same prophecy God said he's going to deal with them so I have no doubt that this is but a further stage in the fulfilment of God's marvellous plan uh, uh, for our part of the world and for the nations. It's going to end one day in the coming of the Messiah. And that coming of the Messiah is going to be the culmination of all these acts and events and stages. It's going to be a culmination in glory. We certainly need to pray. I do hope that I haven't given you a gloomy picture uh, I hope I've given you an encouraging picture. 
Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps we're taking them slightly out of context. When you see these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, your redemption draweth nigh. May I say what I think I've said before in this convention. When Jesus said, look up and lift up your heads, he was speaking of the Jewish posture of worship, which is to stand up, look up. You can't put your head down with your head lifted. You're looking up. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, the Christian thing is to bow. And the Jewish thing is to lift up your hand. And when, what the Lord Jesus was saying is that when you see all these dark things coming to pass and being fulfilled, don't give up. Don't cower. Don't go down and say, oh, oh. Look up. Lift up your head. Worship. Not in an escapist way. Not in an, in an escapist way. As if you're shutting out the wicked world around you. But worship the Lord in a meaningful and significant way as part of the warfare that we're in, declaring that the word of God is true and that the purpose of God is going to stand and that the glory of God is going to be manifested. Worship the Lord like that.